Hello and welcome to the maiden voyage of the Quadcast. My name is John McAlevey. Quadcast, you ask, what is that? Well, in a nutshell, it is a podcast for and about folks like me who have in one form or another had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury. The idea is one that's been rolling around in my head for many moons now. I like to think of myself as an idea man, and I believe I have some rather good ones. However, it's my follow-through that is lacking. You know, I have talked about this idea with family and friends, therapists, fellow spinal cord injury survivors, and pretty much anyone with two functioning ears for a long time. And their feedback was always really positive. Some told me, hey, you've got a great idea, John, run with it. Then I would bump into them six months or a year later and they'd ask, how's that podcast going? To which I would say, thanks for remembering, but I'm still looking into getting the right equipment and trying to put together a rudimentary website. I'm just fine tuning things overall, which meant, you know, I was doing nothing. So it is with that as a backdrop, and with the fact that I'm not getting any younger, unfortunately, that I present to you the Quadcast Podcast, a 30-minute or so session of OT and PT for your soul. I hope you will enjoy, and if so, you'll tell a friend or ten. Now, I don't know about you, but immediately following my injury, I was told that no two SCIs are the same. And while that may be true, many of the struggles we are left with are. So let's talk about them. This podcast is for and about us. Therefore, I intend to speak with fellow survivors to highlight their personal stories of struggle and triumph. I will invite on doctors, therapists, nurses, entrepreneurs, and others who work on behalf of our community to share with us any new developments or breakthroughs there are in the fight. Nothing is off limits. I will discuss everything from bowel programs to Botox injections, all with the hope that by talking, sharing, commiserating, and above all laughing, we will fully understand that no one is alone in this. Okay, right off the bat, did you recognize my intro music? I know it was pretty quick and it was a little obscure, but were this project ever to get off the ground, it was the only music that would work for me. Do you give up? It comes from the song Black Gold by Soul Asylum, and it was released on October 6, 1992. Unfortunately for me, just a few months earlier on August 19, I had fallen down my basement steps. I don't remember walking up them, nor do I recall falling down, but when I come to at the bottom, was completely paralyzed from head to toe. I was 24 years old and about to begin living a whole new life. Like most of you out there, I'm sure you remember the exact moment you had to as well. Following two months on the neuro floor at Overlook Hospital, I arrived as an inpatient at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, New Jersey. Here's where the song comes in. On my first day of therapy, as I was wheeled into gym A, where the task of putting Humpty Dumpty back together again was about to begin, coincidentally or not, the song playing rather loudly on the speakers that morning was Black Gold. I'm not sure if you have ever heard the song. It certainly is not one that's popular these days, but it contains lyrics that grabbed me that day and shaped what was about to become my fight to come back. Those words that became my mantra were... I mean, wow, that to me was a sign and it could have just as easily been a bumper sticker on the back of my wheelchair. Those lyrics became the driving force for my recovery and this whole endeavor. We are living through some trying times right now, and I don't know about you, but I almost feel like it's a Twilight Zone episode. But I hope that the Quadcast will be an outlet and an asset for you with your time. If there are people you would like me to speak with, please email me and I will try to make that happen. If there are topics that I have not covered that you feel could benefit our community, give me a shout. As I said in the beginning, we are all in this together, and I look forward to hearing from you. Okay, enough about me. 
When we get back, I'm excited to speak with a man who truly embodies the lyrics I highlighted earlier. In fact, the first sentence of his website reads as such, quote, a two-time world traveler and a navigator of life with paralysis for over two decades, he has presented to over one million people in 38 countries, end quote. Who is he? Well, you'll just have to stick around and find out. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin, the radio play-by-play announcer for the New Jersey Devils. If you like what you're hearing from John McAlevey on today's show, then you'll want to check out more Sports Now's podcast. You know, John's a huge sports fan, and each week he joins me and Steve Titchener for a spirited roundtable discussion on what's going on in sports on both sides of the Hudson. Our podcast can be heard at moresportsnow.com, but also on iTunes, Spotify, and iHeart. I hope you'll check us out. And welcome back to the Quadcast. I'm John McAlevey. Now, when I thought about who should be my first guest, I wanted it to be someone who has not let their spinal cord injury define them, someone who has made an indelible mark on the community and has a compelling story to tell. And I think you'll agree after listening to this that Scott Chesney is that someone. Scott, welcome to the show. John, it is a pleasure to be on the podcast. Congratulations on your program. I, I am uh, humbled. I'm honored to be your first guest. Wow, that's terrific. And, you know, I guess we should start off by saying that we share a common friend. My occupational therapist from Kessler, Miss Gabriella Stiefbold, is a neighbor of yours or a town friend? She's a town friend. I've known her husband for years, and our sons actually are uh, freshmen soon to be sophomores in high school, we'll play soccer together and are great friends. So the world's getting smaller every day, John. <laughs> it certainly is. And a shout out to Gabby for, for putting us together and uh, letting it enable us to, uh, to talk here today. You know, Scott, I guess before we really get into it, we should probably talk about the circumstances that we're all living under right now, this COVID-19 pandemic that's enveloped the globe. How has that affected the way you and your family are living? Well, like everyone, John, I mean, it's, uh, we've had to pivot. We've had to adjust. We've had to adapt. Um, I don't think a day has gone by and now we're into this maybe 60 days is that, um, where I haven't awakened and kind of rubbed my eyes, shaking my head and saying, was this all just a nightmare? Um, but what's interesting, then a little grin come, overcomes my face. And while I, I, I don't know, uh, the enemy out there, it's still unknown to all of us to a degree is that the little grin on my face, though, is uh, it, it's so related to my disability. And I, I, I have found this to be true with others with disability, is that we have an opportunity here to take what we've learned through living life with a disability and really apply it to these circumstances. Because I, I mean, I'm hearing the words, people actually feel paralyzed out there who aren't paralyzed. They feel trapped. They feel confined. Welcome to uh, our world, feel, right? Exactly. That's so much a part of our world. And again, I'm not saying that we have it all handled out there. We are still a part of the population that is at the highest risk, especially those with upper resp- respiratory issues. So, I mean, we have to be careful. But when you talk about having to adjust, when you talk about having to kind of adapt and pivot, we've all taken to a degree a master class in this, whether it was being born with a disability or acquiring it at some point in our lives. So um, the biggest issue, which I have no problem saying because it it really hasn't weighed me down too much. My biggest issue, John, has been when am I going to get my hair cut? <laughs> it has absolutely nothing to do with anything except my being vain and having no control over my hair and not trusting a single person in my hair to cut it. So if that's my biggest issue from all of this, then uh, I really have no problems right now. Well, I must say you are a braver man than I doing your Zoom casts on your Thrive community. I shy away from them because, yeah, my boss right now is is a little bit long right now. So I am uh, shying away from the Zoom podcast at the moment. <laughs> right, it, it, it's quite all right. I, I still believe I have that radio face, but for some reason, uh, we find a way to 
do some videos as well. So whatever it may be, um, you know what? My hair hasn't grown that long, but I, I do see. And, and real quick again about what's out there and what I've been sharing with a lot of people, John, is that, you know, we, we have a fear of the unknown. And if we have any athletes out there or anyone who's been any kind of competition, doesn't necessarily mean sports, is that you like to prepare yourself as much as possible uh, for your opponent. And so the chance is is that this COVID-19, this pandemic, we really were learning more every day, but we really still don't know a lot about the enemy, about the opponent. So that could take us to levels of fear or like anything in life, John, we could say, you know what, who am I all about? What am I capable of? What are my abilities? What can I bring to the table? And I, I, I have found that to be so true in my life rather than getting put up. I meant there's a great saying saying the only competition in life um, is that person in the mirror when it really boils down to it, and that's with yourself. So I, I have to, and this is a daily grind, this is a daily commitment that I and a lot of people in this world are making to themselves now, is that how can I be a better version of myself each and every day? And so it, it almost has gotten to the point with me, whereas, um, yes, I am concerned about the opponent. Yes, I take precautionary measures, but I know what I'm capable of. I, I know what I can do to not only survive this thing called life, but I could thrive in the face of any challenge that you put in front of me. Well, those are words to live by. Absolutely. Amazing outlook on life. And let's sort of pivot back to uh, spinal cord injuries. I remember when I was first admitted to Kessler, you'll probably get a kick out of this. I was in my room and someone came in. It was either a nurse or maybe the vocational director. And they said to me, John, what were you pre-morbidly? And I said to myself, what the heck does that mean? And then I said, oh, <laughs> oh, I know what that means. John, what was your life like before this heinous atrocity just ruined the way the rest of your life, you know? And so I guess I'll pose that question at you. What? That wasn't your psychologist, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. And I said, okay, oh. I just want to make sure. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess I will ask you, what, Scott, what were you like as a young man? What were some of your aspirations? And uh, what were some of your dreams for the future before you had your accident? Well, I, I was, um, my life was all about movement. So I enjoyed. Um, uh, a carefree life to a certain degree for the first 15 years of my life. Um, a lot of it's around sports. I loved football, basketball, baseball. And, and those were really, um, the only goals, um, growing up and as a, a young teenager and kind of in my second year of high school is that I, I wanted to go to the University of North Carolina and play basketball where Michael Jordan played. And if that didn't happen, I was quarterback for the football team. And I, I wanted to go to my favorite team, still my favorite team, the University of Oklahoma and play quarterback for the Sooners. So, um, what was interesting is that, yeah, life was all about movement. It was even like difficult to get me to sit down and read a book while I was a very good student, not an excellent student, a very good student. I had to, to work very hard. It's just I did not like to sit still. Mm -hmm. I did not. Have, I probably and still today, still borderline ADD. I meant because you're paralyzed, that doesn't take that away. Sometimes it makes it even worse. But I just wanted to know what the next thing was that I was going to do, that I was going to be, that I was going to experience. And it's still that thirst for life that I, I think drives me each and every day. That's amazing. You know, when I think of, and when most people think of spinal cord injuries, you know, they think of maybe car accidents. Uh, in my case, I had a fall down my basement steps, uh, maybe diving misfortunes. I know when I was there, they have such thing as uh, the swimming and diving season, which is a little morbid again. But uh, those are some things that come to mind when you think of a spinal cord injury. You have a rather unique story, at least it is to me. Tell us about, unfortunately, how you got involved with uh, the spinal cord injured world. Well, well, John, you hit it right on the head. I, I still think the statistics show that um, almost like 70% of people who are newly spinal cord injured are between the ages of 18 and 25. And whether it be motor vehicle accidents or diving or just kind of being in that place of just pushing the limits of life, that's where uh, a lot of people are and mostly males. And 
yeah, I, I don't fit into that category. I was actually born uh, back in 1970. I just celebrated my 50th birthday. And, uh, hey, now, welcome in, to the club. Yeah, I've been hearing that a lot lately. My nephew said I'm halfway there, so <laughs> I, whatever that means. Yeah. Is that so? I, I when I was born in 1970, and you wouldn't have known this about me unless you did an MRI on me. There were no MRIs back in 1970, and I was a healthy kid, so no reason for to do anything. Is that if you did an MRI on me back then, you would have seen uh, a malformation of blood vessels lodged in my spinal cord. And it was almost like a sleeping volcano in which it could have like gone off at birth. This malformation of blood vessels bled and kind of exploded, creating almost like a stroke in my spinal cord. Um, could have happened at age five, could have happened at age 20, could have never happened. Um, but on December 28th, 1985, is that, and again, no accident, no injury, no trauma, John, is that those blood vessels just erupted and bled and created a stroke of my spinal cord that left me paralyzed from about my belly button down to my toes, T7 for those um, that are wondering out there in the medical field. And what's very interesting is that it started with a numb big toe. So I woke up, I was a sophomore in high school. I woke up the morning after a high school basketball game and I couldn't feel my left toe. Like when your foot falls asleep, those pins and needles. Sure. And then 48 hours later, that numbness went up one leg, went up a second leg. And again, left me paralyzed, unable to move and feel normally. Still had the pins and needles, but didn't have the same sensation as I, I normally did in my entire body. And uh, again, even during this progression of paralysis, I did not think that like paralysis was, was occurring. Again, I was a 15-year-old kid. I'm still to this day one of those believers that like when you get sick or something's not necessarily right, but everything else seems to be fine, temperature and your energy and all that, is that you know what you give your body time to heal. And what I found out, which gave me peace of mind, is that even if I went to the doctor and I had that numb big toe, it was just like the progression of the paralysis that was still going to take place. It was just taking its sweet time, but the damage had been done. And so um, the best way they describe it is uh, an AVM, an arterial venous malformation, and a, a congenital one. Okay. And one that um, what's interesting is that they did an MRI on me. This was now back in 1986 um, when they finally got around to doing this in the second hospital that I was in. And that was uh, that just indicated it was the 21st test that was done. That just indicated that this malformation existed, wasn't to correct anything. It was a laminectomy, just exploratory surgery. And they plucked a few of these blood vessels and kind of sent those to pathology and kind of sewed me back up. Right. And what's interesting is that it was weeks later is that um, I just, my doctor told me that um, as many people are told, unfortunately, with certain types of paralysis is that you're never going to walk again. And then I was told that um, I was a very lucky kid. And I was like, it just shattered my dream. How yeah. could you tell me I'm lucky? Lucky, right? And I know. I was like, yeah. And I told him what my dreams were, what I just shared with you, North Carolina, Oklahoma. Doc, yeah. How could you tell me I'm lucky? And he said, well, Scott, yours is the 12th documented case ever. And what, they had, what he had shared with me was that a retired pathologist from Africa was visiting a former colleague at Columbia Presbyterian. And he said, hey, you know what, while you're here, can you take a look at this? And the guy had seen one of the cases before mine, one of the 11 cases before mine. And he said, that's like, that's a congenital AVM. It's actually got a long syndrome name. It's called Wild Allergen Syndrome. And I'm still, John, not convinced to this day that they know exactly what had happened to me. I'm just thankful that it stopped where it did. I'm thankful that there's no other malformations in my spinal cord. But what they did share with me is that out of the 11 cases before mine, is that seven of those malformations, seven of those strokes occurred in the brain and went down. Yikes. He then proceeded to tell me that those people never lived. So there was an immediate flood of gratitude that overcame me as to, wow, you know what? I, I could have had so much more taken away from me. I, I could have died from this. And yet I'm left in a situation that is going to be challenging, that is going to be difficult, but I have an opportunity to kind of be fully independent here and uh, living my life however long it may be. 
uh, with paralysis. Unbelievable. Now, you mentioned 15 years old, this happens. You yeah. know, 15-year-old's life, there's a lot going on. I mean, how did all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're at 15, you're trying to fit in, you've got girls, you've got sports, you've got uh, everything rolling around. How did all of a sudden now being disabled affect you and, and just making relationships and just life in general? I mean, that on top of all that other stuff I mentioned had to be really mind-boggling. Yeah, you know what? And uh, I know there's a lot of people out there that says, you know, what, there's certain stages of uh, of grief and certain stages that you go through when you experience like adversity like this. And while yes, that might be the the range for people or the the certain order for some people, I think it really varies from person to person. John, this did not, and I mean this wholeheartedly. This did not phase me really whatsoever in the beginning. And it was almost like, and uh, the attention, and um, just feeling amazingly special that overtook me um, from the very beginning. And I, I was honestly in a place of feeling like that I'm sick, and that I'm going to get better. I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to have movement in my legs. Um, even kind of after the doctor said that to me, I, I really, in terms of never being able to walk again, there was still part of me that says. Okay, my, my body just needs to rest. It just needs to heal. So I, I still to this day don't necessarily, and we're going into uh, almost 35 years of this now, is that I, I just still don't place a permanence on this. Um, but it, it was something that I, I realized that was so big and so life-altering that, you know what, I, I could not, like, face it and necessarily deal with it. So it's almost like I create an escape for myself. There, there was a part of me that almost felt like, uh, and I, I know it's like subconsciously, is that this this was big, this was massive, this was something that like I, I couldn't deal with. So it's almost like I think internally this fight or flight just uh, was in a place of flying at the time. Like, I don't, I don't want to fight this. I don't want to deal with this. And so I, I became busy. I became busy in school. I became busy in my life. I got involved in wheelchair basketball and all amazing things. And you know what? I'm really able to, I always share with people, John, is that like, you can't change our pasts. No matter what's happened in our past, we can't change it, but we can rewind the tape of our lives and go back to any moment. And I was just wondering, almost like on a subconscious level, like when I made that decision to say like, I can't deal with this or I don't want to dive into this now. And so I just remember, whether it be my mother, my father, my brother, droves of friends each and every day coming to visit me in the hospital yeah, and sitting in that bed and seeing people's eyes the size of golf balls with tears in them. Mm. And John, I know deep down inside, this wasn't consciously something I was thinking, but almost like subconsciously, it's like, I can't deal with all that pain that you all are experiencing. So you know what? I, I need to put this smile on my face. I need to let everyone know that I'm okay and that I'm going to overcome this. And I know that that 15-year-old kid made that decision yeah. to kind of plunge forward and do that. And what I realized so many years later, John, is that when you take something like that, you kind of stuff it in your backpack, um, it's always there waiting for you. Um, yep. Sometimes it can weigh you down and, and really be... Um, trying in your life and preventing you from doing things, but it's always there, not to GG anyone, but you know what? I, I think it's always there to open. So it wasn't until I, I honestly, probably 12 years later, I finally opened up that backpack and yeah. I grieved for that 15 year old boy and I allowed him to feel all those feelings and everything that he had lost, all the things that have been taken from him, all the experiences that you would really almost like entitle any 15-year-old kid to experience. I gave him every single opportunity, and um, it was liberating. It was healing. And there was just a, an understanding and knowingness as to kind of what I did to protect myself at that time. And, and so it's a story that, again, I'm always in a place, John, is that like when I share something with people, if I'm trying to prove something, 
then there's that level of uncertainty uh, with something and maybe uh, a sense of non-closure with something. But when there's just a knowingness and in terms of just sharing, yeah, that's what that 15-year-old kid, I know that to be my and again, that's my path. There's people, and you know this all too well, John, who immediately something like this impacts their life. And it's just some people even get to that point, and I'm not here to judge of wanting to take their lives. And I, and they do. And I, I, I can't judge someone because I, if that massive um, wave of emotions hit me full-fledged and I allowed myself to feel that, I know that there would probably be that hopelessness um, that could settle in and what actions are taken from there. I'm not here to judge. I, I know that tremendous family and friend support. And also, again, that, that fight or flight side of me just says, yes. okay, we, we need to take off and we need to let everyone know that we're okay. Yes. And so uh, that's what I did. That's amazing. I, I can remember... Uh, a lot of those same feelings. I was, um, when I first got to Kessler, I was 24 years old at the time. And I was lucky enough that I grew up in Short Hills, which was, you know, I could have thrown a rock from my house and hit Kessler. So it was nice <laughs> that, that I had friends that were there 24-7. Um, interestingly enough, some of them who were my best buds at the time that I thought would be in the foxhole with me, kind of couldn't handle it, couldn't deal with, you know, the whole hospital scene and all of that stuff. Some guys that were, you know, tangentially friends that have grown into like the greatest friends ever. Um, but I can remember being in the rotunda every Saturday watching football games. <laughs> I had buddies that would travel out from the city that would sit with me. They just wouldn't let me, you know, not be a part of of the whole crew. And it sounds like exactly what you are describing right there. Also, family. I mean, how can how can you not thank your family for uh, for times like this? I know some folks that I was with that were patients, uh, their families bailed. They couldn't deal with it. Or some of them maybe didn't have close families or that weren't going to be able to take them back in when they were finally, you know, ready to get home. And, you know, how can we not thank folks like that? I mean, they're the ones that really kept us going, don't you think? Yeah, John, you, you, you're hitting it on the head is that we can only hope that everyone out there has the family and friends support that we had. Um, but unfortunately, you're right, is that there's some people who you would think are the most loving, caring individuals who when something like this happens to a loved one or a friend, they can't deal with it. They run in the opposite direction and people judge those people. And I'm, I would hope again, if this never happened to me, and let's say it happened to my brother, I, I would hope, I would want to believe that I would have everything in my power to love him unconditionally and be there. Um, that That's not a guarantee. And so it's just, it's, uh, I'm thankful. I know it's so much a part of the rehabilitation and the healing and, and uh, the unconditional love process that takes place. Um, I will share this reminded me of this is that a, a very close friend who was actually my uh, running back in football. So I was the quarterback. He was my running back. Um, it took him a little time uh, to get to the hospital. And when he did, uh, I, I get a little emotional every time that I think of this story, which isn't that often, but um, he came into my room and his head was down. And I said, Hey, Maddie, he goes, what's up, Chez? He could not pick his head up. Yeah. And I said, Maddie, I was like, lift your head up, buddy. And he and he had like tears in his eyes. And then I got tears in my eyes and I got tears in my eyes now. And I just said to him, I was like, buddy, I, I'm still here. He goes, I know that, man. I know that. And it just, it was very difficult for him to formulate sentences. Um, he came over, leaned over, gave me a hug and he left pretty quickly. And so right away I had said to myself when he left, is that, wow, if Maggie was the one laying in that hospital bed and I was the one on my feet, would I have the strength? Would I have the ability to connect with him? And I would hope so, but that's not a guarantee, especially because so much of that particular friendship was the physical, playing football, basketball, baseball, two of the fastest runners in the class. Everything, so much of our friendship and relationship involved the physical and now that had been taken away. Yeah. So it, it's it's tough. And uh, again, looking from the outside in, and 
uh, as a parent. I'm at being a parent myself now. I'm at you want to think that you know what you're the ones who are supposed to be taking something like this on. You should never have to witness a, a child going through this who still has the world in his or her palm of their hands. And um, so that's another difficult thing. I can't I can't judge parents yeah. who are in a place of maybe putting their loved one in a um, in a home or some type of facility, um, and not just because they don't have the, the financial means, but yeah. they don't necessarily have the emotional means that they can tap into. I believe we all have it deep down inside. It's just some people, unfortunately, are unable to, to reach that level sure. and tap into that. But it, it's there. Scott, so tell, us, have, yeah. tell us where all of this positivity comes from with you, you know, reading about you and checking out your website and uh, reading the testimonials from the motivational speaking that you've been doing all over the globe. I mean, where does this come from? Because, I mean, is there ever a, a point where maybe you get in your car and no one's around and the radio's not on right yet, where you just look in the rear view mirror and say, my God, why me? You know, why did this have to happen to me? Because most people see you with a smile on your face and you're pumping young people up with self-esteem. I know is one of your big mantras. You want people to have self-esteem, but there's got to be a point where you just want to say, you know, I want to throw in the towel, have a bit of a pity party and, and start that. Where, do, where does all of this come from? Yeah, I, you know, and I, I have those. I, I, I absolutely have those moments. That's called being a human. So, like, I, I, I made a decision a, a long time ago, John, is that I, I said to myself, I am no longer going to have a bad day. I refuse to have a bad day. Oh, do I have challenging moments? I have moments my legs feel like when you're falling asleep, but like a hundred times worse each and every day. Right. A 15 year old kid decided not to take any medication. He said, I'd rather have some feeling than no feeling at all in his legs. And I'm so glad I made that decision back then. And so the thing is, if I focused on nothing, and it's such an example that I wake up to, even my legs, if I focused on nothing except the pins and needle feeling in my legs, I'd probably be screaming in agony right now. <laughs> but so, yes, I have those moments of pain. Yes, I have the moments of sadness. Yes, I have the moments of what if or would have, could have, should have, and all these things. I allow myself to have moments of that. But where does this strength come from? It's deep down at the core of who I am and in my heart, which is so filled with gratitude. And, and so that's why I share with people each and every day, if you feel like you're in a funk, if you feel like you can't get out of your own way, if you're dwelling, if you're thinking more about the past, you're dwelling on the past and everything, wow, yeah. you're going to be stuck. If you're too preoccupied with life and, and, and full of anxiety, that means you're in the future. Yeah. Got to get back to the moment. And what brings me back to the moment more than anything, John, is this wonderful gift that we have in every moment, even during this pandemic, is gratitude. Mm. So I try to, I, I start my day, I end my day with gratitude, but I also try to flood my life with gratitude in terms of for every one thing that you legitimately tell me is sad about your life, sad about my life, is frustrating about your life, my life. It's not going well, your life, my life. I'm going to tell you that there's at least 10,000 things that are awesome about our lives. And so it's not a matter of going there immediately because it's very important, John, for us to feel our feelings, to feel that frustration, to feel the sadness, to feel all these natural feelings. But I find when I'm dwelling on any one of them, I'm not in the moment. Right. I am not in the moment. I'm either trapped in the past and rewinding that tape, or I'm, again, filled with anxiety of too much of what I'm trying to control, which I have no control over sure. in the future. So how do I get back in the moment? You, you bring up the line, why me? Yeah. And that absolutely has surfaced from time to time. Then all of a sudden, I got to a point where it was almost like, why not me? <laughs> to the point where like I can handle this all. And then I kind of like doing my travels around the world and everything saying, you know what, I want to take on all this energy. So that even kind of like transcended to why this? Yeah. That's the biggest question these days that I ask myself and I try to answer as much as possible. Why this? Why this experience am I going through right now? What am I supposed to learn about myself 
What am I supposed to learn about those around me? What am I supposed to learn about the world? Yeah. And even during these challenging times, I meant that the why this, I have to tell you, my, my head, my heart, everything is buzzing because one of the most challenging times in our lives is front and center right now. And I absolutely believe, just like my paralysis, just like your paralysis, yes, I wish I could go back one tape and make like your paralysis, my paralysis, this pandemic never happened. But knowing full well that it has, something tells me is that there are blessings in disguise. Mm -hmm. That if we take away from our adversity, no matter how small or big it is, the adversity, we find those blessings I will tell you is that our lives will be enhanced yeah. and enhanced much quicker mm -hmm. when we can get to those gifts mm -hmm. that are lined. We ain't one person listening to these right now. And it doesn't mean that my heart doesn't go out to you for what you've experienced through your trials, through your tribulations, whatever it may be. But there's also a knowingness deep down on my heart that that experience, not to say consciously, I went out there and paralyzed myself, or consciously, you went out there saying, I'm going to paralyze myself today, or and the world saying, hey, we're going to create this pandemic right now. No, that's not the way it happens. But when it does actually happen, in any type of adversity, there are blessings in disguise that maybe, just maybe, would have never surfaced in our lives right. if it had not been for such an extreme measure that was taken place, an extreme event in our lives. It's almost like, I was so little danger with people uh, on a call that I was on on a Zoom call. I was doing a presentation and I said, um, the only thing I can kind of remotely compare this pandemic to is like a 9-11 mm -hmm. in which like our minds were blown, but our hearts were open. Yeah. And for some people, based on that drastic measure that took place, some people became nicer. Some people were more in their hearts. Some people became more family-oriented. And even though, again, the conditions are a little bit different now, some the, the extreme measure of pandemic has generated a lot of the same effects, maybe getting closer to the family, mm -hmm. mending a relationship really focusing on our health and what's most important in our lives that through our busyness, we really didn't get around to doing, but now is just amazing um, to know that, okay, this has been brought to the surface. I, 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 I'll share one more thing with you, John, is that yeah. my 50th birthday was amazing. I met my wife and my kids had surprises for me and they had, they, I mean, I got calls. They did like a 50 minute video with all these people who called like throughout the week and everything. Um, and they got them on a video. I don't, there was no way that would have ever taken place had this pandemic been around. <laughs> right. would have found a way to be busy. I probably would have said, I don't want to party and everything, but it was like the most intimate, like loving, Amazing. most simple experience. And again, I don't think anything else on any type of level had not been for this pandemic. Yes. Would have generated such a result. It's true. It's absolutely true. Scott, Ride the Wave, a film about strength, perseverance, perseverance and family. How did that come about and how much fun was that to put together? Well, that was amazing. That was, uh, I want to say, close to five years ago is that I was in the Atlantic Ocean um, doing adaptive surfing, which is doing everything on a surfboard except standing up on it. So I have taken waves left, John, 100 yards the length of a football field. I've taken them right. I just absolutely love the ocean. And uh, while I was surfing, I usually have a team out there with me to kind of retrieve the board. Some will pitch me into a wave if I can't catch them on my own. Is that these guys um, were just wandering around, two filmmakers um, from Nolte Films, and they were looking to be inspired. And uh, they saw what was going on out there, kind of took one of my um, uh, volunteers and helpers, one of my buds, who came in to get like a, a snack and they just asked him a little bit. I told him about adaptive surfing and they were like, wow, adaptive surfing, huh? And I go, well, wait a minute, before you do that, you got to Google this guy's name. Right. So they gave him my name. They Googled me and said, hey, we found our story. <laughs> so when I came in and was telling off and everything, they approached me and they said, Scott, we really believe we want to do a documentary about your life. We're fascinated by what we've been experiencing here. We've been online. We've heard from a couple of people. And I, I said, I, I'm honored. I'm humbled. 
but I will read this under one condition that it is done in a way, just like my speaking presentations are, John, that helps people help themselves with their own lives. So while you might be traveling vicariously through me, my sharing of my story, constantly I'm wanting people to plug in their own lives and to say, well, wait a minute, okay, wow, you know what, I can relate, not necessarily to paralysis, but maybe being trapped into my life. Ooh, wait a minute, so he experienced some adversity in his life? Okay, how did he kind of see it through? Ooh, I had those feelings of frustration and anger and sadness and loss in my life. I lost a loved one. All these things that like, so many people in this world can relate to, I wanted that to be the way in which this film was done and they did a beautiful job and you know and, and you talk about pivoting you talk about adjusting so the whole plan for this movie ride the wave was to go to film festivals almost like applying to colleges you apply to film festivals and you hope they accept you and they want to debut it and kind of spread the word and we actually had it in the hands of some of the top um film festivals who were just getting ready before this started to kind of announce who their winners were. Then all of a sudden the pandemic, so we were going to go the film festival route that makes theaters and then whatever, doing it online. This happened and all the film festivals were canceled, postponed or whatever. We could have waited till next year, but I got together with the filmmakers and, and we all agreed that there may never be a better time in our lifetimes than now to share this film in which it's about hope, it's about perseverance, it's about courage, inspiration, motivation, love, family, friends, yes. all of these ingredients that we're really exploring and tapping into in our own lives now. So we uh, worked it through Vimeo.com, right. yep. so you can rent it, you can buy it on there. And the feedback has been amazing uh, around the world so far, and it reached a lot of people. And going to actually start, which was going to be an in-person tour, right. is that um, I was going to go around and whether it be corporations and colleges and schools and speak. There was going to be a part of the tour, too, in which we were going to bring this film to rehabilitation centers, to that hospitals, to VAs, children's hospitals. And so while obviously, and then do a motivational presentation and a Q&A after. So while we can't do that, is that we can do that virtually to the point where we're going to allow like the hospitals and VAs in these major cities to have a screening period of maybe 48 hours, 72 hours, I don't know, in which they'll be able to review the film. And then right after the viewing period's over is that I'm going to appear via Zoom or however and do a virtual presentation for them, connect with as many people, family members, faculty members, that healthcare professionals, awesome. you name it, and then um, do a Q&A as well. So uh, again, yep. pivoting, adjusting, the Ride the Wave tour continues. I guess all that's left uh, at this point now is whether it will be Clooney or Pitt that plays the starring role. <laughs> do you have a preference? <laughs> Do you have a preference? You know what? I, I, am, I am playing the role of me. So, <laughs> but but I, I have not given up on the hope, as my nephew said, is that like I'm halfway there at 50. Hey, there could be a documentary sequel down the road. I do not believe it's going to be as exciting yes. as the first 50 years. Okay. But um, you know what? I'm going to do my best to make sure that the next 50 years, if that's how long I'm supposed to be here, is just going to be filled with um, everything. Everything, John, that Ride the Wave offers, and, and real quick, is that the Ride the Wave title came, and while, yeah, there's a surfing element to it, it's just, it's so much more about the ways of life that we're riding, knowing full well that sure. there are peaks to our lives, just like there's a peak to a wave in which those are moments in our lives that we wish never came to an end. And we wish we could ride those forever and be at the peak, but we know that there's no peak that ever lasts. Right. And then the valleys, and that's the failure, that's the setback, that those are the struggles that we have. And, you know, how would we know a peak if we didn't know a valley? And, and so the valleys in which we've experienced, those are moments in which we said, wow, yes. we wish these moments would come to an end. Sometimes we want to get off that way. We want to, like, leave this thing called life. Absolutely. And so, um, but you look back on those now. You look back on those failures and those struggles that we've had. And in the moment, it felt like the end of the world. But you look back on them now, John, and you say, wow, 
without that, this is where rewinding the tape of your life is so powerful. You can say, you know, without that experience, I would have never met this person. Without that experience, I would have never met that person. I don't know, John, if our paths would have ever crossed had not paralysis entered your life, entered my life, and boom, Gabriella Stiefold, an occupational therapist sure. who you mentioned earlier. Yes. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't even care to know. I just know that it's one of those many gifts. Right. Having the ability to connect with you that absolutely uh, paralysis has delivered to my life. Yes. A couple of quick hitters uh, because I know you're a busy man and I appreciate your time. Uh, Scott, a couple of quick hitters, as I said. Um, what First of all, what is the best thing? This sounds a little crazy. What is the best thing about being disabled? And then on the flip side, what is the worst thing in your mind about being disabled? Huh. The the best thing, I'm going to say self-awareness. Okay. And I think it's going to begin with the physical because as you well know is that if we don't care, take care of ourselves physically, uh, we're not going to be here. So for me, on a, on a daily basis, whether it be having to catheterize myself, whether it be having to have a certain type of bowel movement, whether it's checking my skin, I have to make sure that my body is in top shape as much as it can be, again, aging with a disability and uh, doing everything that I can to physically take care for it, uh, take care of it. That transcends. So that goes from the physical. Yes. For me, it goes to the mental because unless the mental is going to be there and the attitude and the, yeah, mostly a positive attitude is that I'm going to find excuses not to care for my body. And I know what that's going to result in. Mm-hmm. It's going to result into a hospital stay. Right. So that's where, you know, it, it's it's about the mental game as well. And I feel that what brings it all together for me, it, it's the spiritual. Okay. It's the spiritual okay. knowing full well that, you know what, there is something much bigger than us all that exists out there. Call it God, call it whatever you want, or don't call it anything. Sure. That is just sending us signs, sending us signals each and every moment of our lives to kind of put us back in the moment and help us to reconnect with ourselves. So that's the best part. I want to say just the the self-awareness. The biggest challenge for me, and it's the physical. Yeah. It's the physical for me. So it's, I, I like to say it's um, my, the, the greatest paralysis. It's like heaven and hell. And heaven in so many ways that I just shared with you. And the hell is because I am and was such a physical person is that the inability, I have no problem using those words, to do things that I loved before and also things that I maybe was just getting ready to do as a 15-year-old kid. Sure. Uh, will never be necessarily, I, well, I won't say never, but may never be experienced in that same way. And right. that's absolutely uh, disheartening in a way. Yeah. And I do allow myself to feel those feelings, but also to realize that, um, wow, is that uh, I'm alive and there's so many amazing gifts um, that well, are constantly being given to me in my life. Well, that leads me into my final question for you. And uh, I wind up asking a lot of you know my peers uh, when I'm at Kessler this question. And it is, if I could snap my fingers right now and you could be back at whether either 15 years old or right now, uh, uh, the age that you are right now, if I could snap my fingers and you were able-bodied again, what is the first thing you would do? First thing I would, uh, can I expand it to more than that? So yeah. Well, I could, t- I let would, me tell you what I would do and then you could kind okay, of take okay. this wherever you want. Yes. <laughs> if you could snap your fingers, something yeah. that I have not been able to do, unfortunately in 27 years, snap my fingers. But if you were to do that, I would get my headsets on, I'd get my tunes, and I would go out for a long run. I would go out and run about <laughs> six or seven miles and just taste the sweat rolling down my face. It would be beautiful. How about yourself? I would absolutely, I, I'm right there with you. I would stand up, probably give my wife the biggest hug in the world <laughs> and uh, kiss, and then uh, my, my son and my daughter uh, give them huge hugs as well. And I would probably run as long and as fast as I could um, to the closest ocean 
to me and uh i would just run as fast as i could and just jump into that not dive hit the surf jump and hit the surf and, and just i don't even know if, like surf on the surfboard but just go in the water and no matter how cold you don't even have to tell me what time of year it is i'm, I'm <laughs> going in that ocean and i'm either gonna freeze or i'm just gonna have a ball but um i just feel that that that's my happy place and love to be fully free in there with my body again, full sensation, full movement. Um, not if that day ever comes, when that day comes. We can only hope, right? And we can only think that uh, that in due time, um, something like that will be possible for folks down the road. And, and who knows, for you and I, perhaps one of these days. Would love it. Excellent. Well, Scott, I want to really thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule. I mean, all you need to do is is go on Scott Chesney's website and see uh, a, a true renaissance man, all the stuff that he's involved with, and for you to carve out uh, a half an hour, 45 minutes of your time to be the first guest here on the Quadcast has been, uh, has been my pleasure, and I'm sure our listeners will feel the same way. Thank you again for coming on. John, thank you. You're a natural, my friend. It sounds like you've been doing this for years. So uh, again, I'm, I'm humbled, I'm honored, and I can't wait to see how much you flourish in uh, with the quadcast. This is phenomenal. You're in your element. I know you're going to be helping a lot of people. So thank you. And that will do it for the inaugural Quadcast podcast. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and hopefully as many podcast hosts as possible. I want to send a special shout out to Chris Parapesco, my trusted producer who works at Sound Lounge in New York City. Thank you, Chris, for answering all of my questions and for mixing the show for me. Make sure to tune in next week when my guest will be my friend, Mike Nichols, of the Mikey Strong Charity Hockey Events. Once again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care.